was a shooting over the weekend uh, in Pensacola. A Saudi air trainee uh, uh, killed several uh, Americans uh, uh, after posting on social media some uh, uh, very critical things in the United States, which led me to wonder on Twitter over the weekend whether uh, this changed the calculus for Section 215 reauthorization. Senator Jim Risch came out over the weekend, I believe, saying he didn't see the need uh, for the program any longer based on the fact that it had not contributed to arresting a major terrorist event. I hate the yardstick of how has this contributed to halting a major terrorist event? Because we don't put any of our other intelligence means and methods under that kind of a yardstick to say, did this directly contribute to stopping this event? I just don't think that, that collecting a large volume like this would have turned this up as a, a predictive tool. Even the well-functioning 215 program didn't ever actually come up with one of those in the in the years it, it operated before it started getting restricted. No, because there weren't, there, as far as we know, there weren't the, uh, such plots. I just think it's generally bad policy to tell our adversaries and those that would do us harm, hey, this is a whole category of stuff we don't look at. I just generally think that's bad strategy. Episode 292 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're expressing here are not those of our firms, our institutions, our families, our pets, our spouses. Uh, and uh, if you catch us in a month, it may not even be ours. Uh, uh, today, I'm joined by Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, formerly with DHS when I was there, uh, and a senior fellow at the R Street Institute by Matt. Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow at the National Security Institute and formerly was with the uh, Department of Justice's National Security Division, uh, and by Nick Weaver, who's a senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur in today's program. Uh, Nick, let's start with you. China has dusted off the uh, great cannon uh, and is firing it at uh, the Hong Kong protesters, maybe to effect. Uh, um, tell us what is the great cannon and uh, how, do, how are the Chinese doing this? So first of all, the great cannon is not the Chinese name for it. We don't know what they call it, but that's what we call it. We call it that because it's a weaponization of the Great Firewall. Yes, although it's not the Great Firewall. That's the thing. It shares commonality with the Great Firewall, but it's different. It's an in-path, man-in-the-middle attack tool. Think NSA quantum, but actually built right, that yet China seems to just use this for injecting JavaScript into outside of China web browsers in order to launch denial of service attacks. When you go across the Great Firewall to a, uh, a site on the other side and they start sending the stuff back to you, uh, uh, the Chinese occasionally step into the uh, stream and put a little malware in the stream that you're getting from inside China uh, and the malware 
aims uh, a bunch of packets at whatever target the Chinese have chosen. Is that more or less it? Yes, except that it's kind of strange. So it's not really malware from your browser's point of view. It doesn't actually do anything that normal JavaScript is not supposed to do. It's just the effect is to load up the target web page. And in terms of usage, it's kind of like using a sledgehammer to smash ants. If I want to do a DOS attack, far easier is just to pay some script kitty in the US 50 bucks on PayPal and they'll do it for you. So th- this may be somebody in China who built this whole system and by God is going to show Xi Jinping that it's uh, a very cool weapon. As I said, or as a friend of mine has said, but he doesn't want to take credit for it, the whole Great Firewall apparatus seems like a poorly operationalized DARPA project. <laughs> well, maybe they stole it from DARPA. That's, that's always possible. Uh, so here's, here's a question I have. Uh, this could be stopped uh, any number of ways. Uh, um, there are a certain number of sites that are serving JavaScript back to users whose uh, feeds are being interfered with. One of them is Baidu, and they're mostly uh, markers for advertising. Baidu could be telling us this is happening and how bad it is, and they could probably stop it by changing their uh, markers that they send back to customers, right? Well, Baidu can only fix it by encrypting all their traffic. That well, duh. You know, when was the last time a major supplier outside of China didn't encrypt their uh, communications to their customers? Yeah, these days there's really no excuse. Um, but truth be told, from Baidu's point of view, uh, it's well, the Chinese could just do phase two where they tell Baidu serve this JavaScript directly. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me ask a different question. Uh, um, Google maintains a list of places it's dangerous to go. Why isn't the Baidu site that is serving this crap, or the, with the help, or the, the, that the Chinese are using to serve this crap? Why isn't that on uh, Google's list of dangerous places to go? You're going to a place where you know somebody is going to serve you JavaScript that does stuff you don't want it to do, and it may be directly contrary to your interests if you're in Hong Kong, which is probably a big consumer of uh, uh, web services from inside China. Except that in order to do that, honestly, what you have to do is say all of China that's not encrypted is considered dangerous. And I well, don't think Google you could is you could wait until they, they actually start serving stuff from that site. But yes, you're Except right. The, uh, the problem is is that the service tends to be quick and transitory and not all requests get the malicious content, so it can be very hard to track down. The only way to robustly handle this is to blacklist all of China. Well, uh, unless they use HTTPS and then there's no problem. So uh, uh, there's there's an easy solution on the Chinese side, an easy solution on the uh, the Google side. And it's kind of shameful that Google has allowed multiple attacks like this and never once said, yeah, there might be a problem going there. They could do that. They they have uh, long lists of places that you get warned before you go. They could simply throw up a warning that says, hey, if you're going here – uh, make sure there's an S in your address because otherwise you're going to be attacking the uh, democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Except that then you still have the Chinese government problem. The 
the response is China just coerces Baidu directly into serving the content or any Chinese company for that matter. Yes. Well, I, you know, I, I don't think it's the end of the world if people are warned before they go inside the firewall to places that can be uh, weaponized in that fashion. Why wouldn't we do that? Talk to Google, but that would yeah. be a big escalation. I am. Maybe there's somebody from Google listening to this right this minute. Come on, guys. Get a conscience. Shape up and, and do something about this. Uh, uh, I, I, I will tell you, I once went to uh, a, a techie friend of mine and created a uh, web app that you could install, an extension that you could install that would warn you before you went to a uh, site inside uh, the Great Firewall about precisely this problem. It's not a hard problem to solve. Uh, um, and uh, we never we never registered it with Google, so Chrome will never accept it. But uh, uh, Google could do this in a heartbeat. Meanwhile, the first victim, I think the earliest victim of uh, um, Great Firewall attacks was GitHub. And uh, you kind of wonder whether GitHub will take the kinds of actions that will expose it to attacks of this kind now that it's owned by Microsoft. Yes, although I would like to point out that um, GitHub was actually the third victim. The first victim was Great Fire, which is a anti-censorship group. Great Fire made the Chinese uh, Information Ministry the second victim by redirecting the attack traffic back at them. And then the Chinese attacked GitHub because they hosted some of Great Fire's content. Well, you got to love a hack back any day. Yeah, you got to love even better a reflection back. So it isn't even a hack back, but using the attack directly against the attackers. And since then, GitHub has remained the one service China can't take down. So they 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 took advantage of that by offering access to the New York Times to people inside China when it was being blocked because it had talked a lot, lot about how much money Xi's relatives had made. Uh, uh, do they still host the New York Times on GitHub? Greatfire.org still has a GitHub page, so they're still hosted with all sorts okay. of stuff. So uh, Microsoft did not force them to, uh, to sell out uh, Greatfire. Yet. <laughs> okay. And the problem is, is Microsoft has a bit of a conflict here. So there's the Apple route of capitulate to China when China asks in the future, but that runs a real risk of losing personnel. So it's already bad enough from um, GitHub's HR standpoint that they have salespeople boasting about rather small contracts with ICE. Just imagine what would happen if Microsoft is squeezed between the Chinese government and their own employees when it comes to uh, counter-censorship. Yeah, I think those employees, they're just the usual social justice wa uh, warriors who uh, 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 can only see faults in the U.S. government and uh, other governments at all. It's all cultural relativism. And who are you to, uh, to bring your white privilege into this discussion anyway? Oh, I um, don't think so. Not with China. China yeah, we'll is see. really disliked here in Silicon Valley. The favorite parts of my lectures are when I pick on China. 
Uh, I should say, if there's anybody from Google that thinks that I'm being unfair to them and you want to come on and rebut this uh, uh, suggestion that uh, you lack conscience for not having done something about the Great Firewall uh, and the Great Canon, uh, let me know. We'll bring you on. So uh, we're still not done with China. TikTok, uh, owned by a Chinese company, uh, is getting sued left and right, uh, mainly over uh, privacy or, or privacy-adjacent uh, uh, topics. Matthew, uh, uh, what's going on? So there's a class action that's been brought in the California courts, and the argument by the plaintiffs in that case are that TikTok is – taking the videos that you create or that your children create and they are sending them to servers in China and sort of harvesting this data without letting its users know and this is being done in violation of California laws and terms of use agreements and all sorts of things like that. There's a second class action lawsuit that was brought against TikTok that according to recent reporting may be on the verge of settling or maybe has settled in its pending court approval. This was a suit that was focused on TikTok's approach to marketing itself and making itself available to children and what it did with children's personally identifiable information. The hook here in this lawsuit is that what TikTok was doing was in violation of COPPA, which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And it appears, as I said, TikTok has settled that case for $1.1 million. So there's a famous – this kind of famously vague notion of are you marketing to children right. and, and it's a little hard to know. Um, and maybe you could argue that we didn't know when we started this that it was going to appeal to 12 to 14-year-olds. But boy, you know, you can sure tell now, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it seems like, you know, if you go back through the history, TikTok was once a website or a, a service called Musical.ly. And then the parent Chinese company called ByteDance applied Musical.ly and then created this combined service called TikTok. And my sense is the whole time they knew that basically children were using the service. I mean, this has, I think, their biggest customer. I don't know this, but it seems like the people that are most interested in the use of TikTok tend to be kids between 10 and 15 years old. So I would think that they would have had a sensitivity to this, but obviously they didn't because they've, they've, they earlier this year got in trouble with the FTC and they settled for several million dollars. And now they've gotten in trouble with um, plaintiffs representing these children that uh, feel like their personal information is being misused. So I went to junior high with Mitt Romney and I have a picture of him and me in P.E. class. Uh, and I guarantee if those pictures had also in featured us lip syncing to popular music and dancing at the time, we would be totally subject to uh, uh, compromat uh, by the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, uh, this is a serious national security issue. Uh, <laughs> is it really, though? I mean, you know, uh, or is it? Uh, you know, Sipius did block the Chinese purchase of Grindr. Right. Well, uh, Grinder clearly is compromised, right? Really? Uh, don't you think that, uh, uh, notwithstanding uh, the change in social values in the last twenty years, there are plenty of people who work for the U.S. government who would just as soon not have their Grinder profiles uh, uh, distributed but to does, their coworkers? Does this, does this mean that that Facebook's collection is is now equally suspect in in Europe or or Asia or anywhere else? They've got the same stuff as TikTok. Is that a national security threat? 
So um, first, they won't give it. Well, maybe they will. Most cases, but yes, maybe. Uh, uh, Well, we may hear that argument yet. uh, But, you know, the the Europeans care so little about uh, national security compared to privacy that I'm not sure that we're going to hear that argument. We're already hearing it in the context of GDPR. That's, That's their version of what we're treating as a national security issue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, 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 I'll never disagree with you on the selective, relative selective amnesia of, of European Union officials. So um, let me ask you about um, uh, another case of amnesia. The 9-11 Commission, you know, which is you know, 20 years old now or close to it, uh, uh, had a recommendation that the United States should do biometric exit entry uh, uh, record keeping, uh, use biometrics to determine who had entered the country and left the country. And the government has been struggling to actually do that for a long time. Uh, and it's recently had yet another hiccup. Uh, Paul, what is it? Well, it's more than a hiccup. Um, They trotted out a proposal to uh, use facial recognition technology uh, to implement biometric exit. Uh, One of the big challenges with biometric exit has always been that the U.S. infrastructure is not really well designed for it. We don't have uh, the physical structure of outbound customs checks. So you have to have a system that is sort of portable and that can work on people yeah, essentially as they go by. Otherwise, you'd have to reconstruct a whole new set of lines for, say, fingerprints uh, as well. The, the, the feds thought they had one with uh, facial recognition. Uh, it it has, still has some problems, of course, in terms of its accuracy, but let's leave that aside. The proposal to do facial recognition on everybody uh, departing the United States, including uh, U.S. citizens, raised a whole bunch of huge privacy hackles with uh, the usual uh, suspects, uh, uh, ACLU and the like. And uh, so it's now dead as a doornail and will probably go another 20 years before we actually get biometric exit if we, if we well, ever get it at all. Well, you know, they can still – there, there isn't really an obligation to collect it on Americans leaving the country. It's only on non-Americans. The problem is it's a little hard when people are lining up to get on a plane to yes, Singapore say, please, to tell please which tell one is Please tell us if you're an American. American or not so that I can take a picture of your face, right? Yes, although although they they I don't know about you, but I always get asked to see my passport before I get on. I just they just want to see the cover in many cases, but that tells you whether they're a U.S. or non-U.S. party, you and you could probably take the do a sort on foreigners leaving uh, that would have some gaps, right? Like uh, two two passport people who came in on mm-hmm. on a U.K. passport and leave on a U.S. that sort of thing, but it could help. Of course, then we'd actually have to do this as well at. Uh, at uh, ports of entry on the land border if we're going to actually have a biometric exit. So this is the problem. This this was about the dumbest recommendation the 9-11 Commission made because at the end of the day, 
the biometrics just improve the accuracy of your record keeping on who left and who entered the country. Uh, um, and you still have to do something about it if they overstay. And that's the only reason you should be collecting that information uh, on an urgent basis anyway. So it's always been sort of a, uh, an, an ugly stepchild of the 9-11 Commission recommendations. Well, I mean, last time I looked, the biographic matching that we do with airlines was running at something like 90% accuracy, right? Maybe better than that. And it's somewhere in that range. And, and biometrics would up us to 96 or 97%. But until we, we uh, use it to clear the backlog of biographic overstays, it's always seemed like a huge investment of resources for not much gain. And, and to be fair to the privacy advocates, you know, the U.S. government has not shown a really great facility with the security of biometric data that it collects in other contexts as well. Right. Uh, so let me let me let me, let me, in China. Let, let me step in on the, 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 the privacy uh, advocates. What a bogus argument this is. What do you think? We don't have pictures of everybody who's leaving the country because if they ain't carrying a passport, they ain't getting back in. So we have their pictures. The only question is, do we take their pictures and try to match it? I, you know, that doesn't strike me as an enormous privacy violation. We already have their pictures. We take their pictures every time they return because we stand in front of that silly camera and they take a very bad picture of us. Uh, I, and, and so the only question is there's something super creepy about using artificial intelligence to try to identify people instead of looking at the passport and saying, oh, OK, this picture goes with uh, this person. I, you know, there's no privacy issue there. All right. Let's talk to Axis. <laughs> Matthew, I, the question of how to tax and whether to tax Silicon Valley is really blowing up into a major uh, issue that's going to interfere with all of us drinking French wine. That's perhaps, especially if you're on a tight budget and you don't want to pay the uh, the tariff rate for French wine. Yeah. So what's happened is uh, several months ago, France uh, introduced this tax called the digital services tax. And this was France's way to get at uh, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon uh, for its commerce in France. And they said, we're going to levy a 3% tax, not on your income, which is the typical way you figure out what someone should be taxed, but we're going to levy it on your revenue. So, you know, if you make $10 in a place, but it costs you $9.99 to get to $10, that means your profit is a penny, uh, but they're going to still levy that tax on top of your, your revenue. The other thing maybe, they- Maybe not the best argument for companies like Google and Facebook. No. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, they also are looking at making it retroactive. And and their fallback has been, look, we're going to impose this tax because um, these businesses have structured themselves in a way that avoids their fair share. And as and soon they're as American. and well, and we don't have any. No, major... they're Irish, actually. <laughs> yes, well, there it is. And but what France has also said is we'll back off this tax as soon as the world comes up with a, an agreement through the OECD process. Now, in addition to France, the Spaniards have hopped on this wagon and said we think this is a terrific idea, and I don't know why every other European country wouldn't follow in that train. And uh, where we stand now is uh, Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin uh, recently wrote a letter to the OECD expressing some concerns about the approach they're taking to kind of figure out this one world taxing regime. And so it's a model right now. And I would expect that 
selective tariff and taxing will take place for quite a while before the OECD gets to a brokered agreement among 135 countries. My memory about the OECD, maybe, uh, uh, Paul, you dealt with them uh, as well, is that uh, it's one of the last places where uh, there are 20 votes for the European Union and one for the United States. So consensus, uh, the, the, the people in the OECD, the countries in the OECD that come from the European Union dare not deviate from the EU line, but they all get to spout it and vote and uh, pronounce a consensus on the basis of their 20 uh, uh, contributions. Uh, uh, so it might not be the best place to be for the U.S. to be negotiating. Uh, um, and it's certainly the case. Nobody uh, other than the United States thinks that taxing American companies is a bad idea. No. I mean, I think the only other wrinkle to all this, though, is it, it doesn't drag in only the U.S. So there are other companies, obviously, oh, yeah, a company China. like Baidu, uh, Rakuten is a Japanese company. So w while we are most squarely in the crosshairs, we're not alone um, there. And I, you know, and so I think there's a lot of um, diplomatic pressure to bear that the Trump administration, if it got creative and smart about it, could work on to come to a more reasonable approach. I think the other thing to uh, remind listeners to is Mnuchin isn't saying we're out of this OECD process. He's setting out some markers for where he thinks the negotiating parameter should be. And so what the, the head of the OECD said is, We'd love for Secretary Mnuchin to come over here so we can accelerate this process before Christmas and talk about where, you know, where are you willing to negotiate? What is acceptable? And we'll see what how he and the administration respond. Okay. You've got to love it when the United States announces that it's imposing sanctions on Evil Corp. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's right. I, 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 probably his white cat, too. Uh, uh, Nick, Paul, uh, how did we end up uh, imposing sanctions on Evil Corp? So Evil Corp is part of the modern cybercrime ecology. One of the things about modern organized cybercrime is they're organized and they're mostly Russian. And this happens to be one of the biggest players. And it's really not the news that we've indicted them. It's the news that we've given up on grabbing them. So in the past, we've had a fair amount of success getting some of these high-profile guys when they visit Israel or uh, are on vacation in Italy or go to the Maldives. And I think the conclusion is we've just basically now given up on being able to prosecute these guys. So it's time to just try name, shame, any economic levers we have and just tell them you're never vacationing outside Sochi. Yep, that does sound like it. Uh, uh, Paul, any uh, any thoughts about the sanctions? Uh, uh, they don't sound like they're going to have much impact. Anybody who's dealing with Evil Corp knows what they're dealing with and, um, and that they're already enmeshed in a, a criminal conspiracy. Uh, I can't believe that uh, OFAC sanctions is going to deter them. Well, I think that that's right. On the other hand, you know, the series of indictments uh, against uh, against Chinese nationals was effective in bringing China to the table, only, but only because it was combined with a uh, larger uh, diplomatic campaign that involved not just sanctions, but confronting uh, Chinese intellectual property misconduct uh, in, in a whole bunch of other forums, looking at freezing assets out of the country. 
the indictments of Evil Corp and the sanctions that are related are good and of themselves, but their real value will come if and only if they're followed up with a greater appetite to confront Russia for harboring uh, criminal gangs and, and, and seeking to impose sanctions at a higher level uh, than, than, the direct, uh, than the direct criminal level that we're talking about. I don't see a lot of appetite for that right now for a lot of reasons that yep. are well beyond the scope of this discussion uh, and get us into contemporary politics. If we were to follow up with that, this would be a good first step. Otherwise, it's, um, you know, it's a nice to have, but who really gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so there was a shooting over the weekend uh, in Pensacola. A Saudi air trainee uh, uh, killed several uh, Americans uh, uh, after – posting on social media some uh, uh, very critical things in the United States that suggest that, that uh, his um, uh, concerns about uh, Muslims was a big part of his motivation. Uh, and at one point, it looked as though the U.S. government was investigating up to 10 uh, uh, Saudis, uh, which led me to wonder on Twitter over the weekend whether uh, this changed the calculus for section. 215 reauthorization because Section 215, the, the program that's most at risk has been a program that collected all of the metadata in the United States uh, and the outside the United States so that uh, the U.S. could be watching for calls to known terrorist organizations outside the United States and then quickly see whether there were calls inside that suggested a conspiracy. And this is the first time we've had any suggestion of a, a a significant conspiracy in the United States since 9-11. Uh, I'm not sure that's panning out, uh, uh, but it does raise the question whether we should uh, uh, should just say, oh, we don't need that program because it's irrelevant now. I agree, Stuart. Um, one other uh, wrinkle in this discussion is uh, Senator Jim Risch, who is the uh, Republican chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence came out over the weekend, I believe, saying he didn't see the need uh, for the 215 uh, CDR called detail record program any longer, um, based on the fact that uh, it had not contributed to arresting a major terrorist event. Um, and so I, I think Senator Risch is mistaken on that point. I think given our continuing vulnerability to terrorism, as this plot demonstrates, it, this is the wrong time to curtail the authorities of the intelligence agencies when it comes to collecting what is metadata, not content. Um, I, I understand the arguments that opponents of the program make that say even NSA can't figure out how to use it. Well, but uh, of course, that the problem there is that uh, uh, Congress so designed the program in the abstract to, to satisfy political needs. And they made it so hard to actually implement that NSA has said, yeah, we can't actually implement it. Yeah. And I think it's also important to remember that NSA can't implement it yet. There may be a technological right. breakthrough or something that comes along in the future that allows them to use it in a more effective way. And I think they should have the ability to do that. Moreover, I hate the yardstick of how has this contributed to halting a major terrorist event? Because we don't put any of our other intelligence means and methods under that kind of a yardstick to say, 
did this directly contribute to stopping this event? And it's a goofy yardstick because intelligence is all about the collection of individual pieces to figure out a puzzle. And you can never be sure that any one given piece is what opens the door. And so I... I think we're silly and we're retrenching from where we were because we're now so far away from 9-11, we can't imagine those things happening again. And I don't, I don't want to have another 9-11 commission pointing out all the dumb things we did or didn't do um, because we've kind of lost sight of, of what happens when we don't keep our foot on the accelerator in terms of making sure we're vigilant and following up leads and available information. Nick? But you do understand the privacy concerns. Um, we now have a congressman um, who's uh, from California who seems to have suddenly realized that phone records. So you're not you're you're not really going to say something nice about Devin Nunes, are you? You're you're going to find a way to, to to wave him around and then discard him, aren't you? Oh, the guy is suing a cartoon cow. <laughs> Okay, so I, I I thought you were going to say I, the the best objection to the uh, the program is that uh, you know uh, people of an age to carry out suicide attacks don't use their phone to call people anymore, and they don't use SMS. They use WhatsApp or Telegram or something of the sort, and those aren't part of the program. But and what's could be worse is Telegram is never going to be part of the program because they're playing metadata um, arbitrage games. That yeah. the problem is with adversaries who only have to worry about a small set of governments or some governments, they can always arbitrage their metadata. That Okay, if you aren't going to attack China, use QQ. QQ is not end-to-end secure, but uh, we can translate what MLAT means in Chinese to tell the FBI to go F itself. So, Stuart, I I guess the other question that I have about this is uh, I'm not sure why it is that a modified system isn't still possible. I mean, what we had here is exactly the use case scenario where if the... uh, if there were phone calls and SMS text messages, which there may not have been, but if there were, uh, uh, we are always aware of the need to collect them within 30 days of of uh, of uh, of the event happening. Yes, I, as, a, as an investigative tool, right? As an investigative tool, we can always get them after right. people are dead. So I I, right. I I just don't think that that collecting a large volume like this would would have turned this up as a as a a predictive tool. I mean, we still, so, even though, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, well, even the well-functioning 215 program, you know, didn't ever actually come up with one of those in the, in the years it, it operated before it started getting restricted, at least not according to the PCLOB. No, but because there weren't, there, as far as we know, there weren't the, uh, such plots, but that, that's, oh, that's, did, that's the problem, the, right? It didn't spot the Boston bombers. Yeah. It didn't spot the New York Times bomber. There were some plots in that time frame that might have been that yeah. were international. Well, uh, there was some suggestion that the Boston bombers were right, and the New York Times yeah. guy was clearly a New York Times Square guy was clearly attached, wasn't he? I just think it's generally bad policy to tell our adversaries and those that would do us harm, hey, this is a whole category of stuff we don't look at. We don't actively pursue this kind of stuff. Oh, I, I, just I agree generally with think that that's as a generic bad strategy. Matter, but you know. Everything's a cost-benefit analysis. 
right? It wasn't that costly a program until Congress uh, raised well, the cost. That. And then there's the- that. <laughs> well, the reason why the cost was raised is because before then it was also a really dangerous program. Give me access to the pre-reform 215 program, and I'll tell you which Republican senators' mistresses had abortions. Uh, well, only you, only if you were willing to break the law. Right. But yes. Uh, I, right. And assuming that there's no inspector general, that there's no executive oversight, that all the disclosures aren't made to the FISA court in the normal course when something goes wrong, which is exactly what did happen. I think the hysteria around the program was always just that, hysteria, never really grounded in any fact. Let's ground our discussion in some law. Amazon is getting sued for Chinese hoverboards, burning down houses. Uh, uh, And uh, this is part of something we've been seeing for a while, an effort to say, I bought my product from a third-party supplier through Amazon. Amazon is responsible when the product hurts me. And it looks to me as though, uh, strategically, Amazon's losing this fight. I think so. And I think it's reflective of what as we've talked about in previous podcasts, what happens in tort law, which tort law is really a vehicle for exercising policy decisions. Yeah, um, and, oftentimes and there's spreading spread spreading the cost to the guy who is in the best position to buy insurance. Exactly, and that's and that's what we're slowly seeing happen through the courts in various guises uh, with respect to Amazon. In this case, the hook for the plaintiffs is that Amazon started to build up an awareness of these hoverboard problems, and their argument is you had a duty to disclose to us there was this issue. Amazon issued a letter. It wasn't as fulsome as it could have been. It will never be. And it never will be. But that's the hook by which the appellate court said, you've got something you can run with. Go back to the trial court and see what you can make of it. Yeah. It's, uh, it, 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 once the courts start down this path, I think it's almost impossible to uh, to prevent them from assigning that liability, not just to Amazon, but to eBay and a bunch of other people. Uh, uh, all right. I, I want to uh, do an update and say something nice about Nancy Pelosi. That may be a first for the Cyberlaw podcast, at least as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, she has announced that she's not sure that the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, 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 free trade agreement uh, uh, should be approved with Section 230, a, a revised version of Section 230 uh, in it. This is the thing that provides an immunity for uh, Silicon Valley social ne- networks and uh, other platforms from liability. It's a policy that has come under fire a lot uh, from the right and the left recently, and uh, at least one uh, law has been passed that uh, undermined it, and uh, Silicon Valley has been trying to do an end run around it by getting it written into the uh, uh, free trade agreements, uh, uh, where in theory it can be changed, but in practice it's almost impossible because then you have to get Canada and Mexico to agree to something that Silicon Valley hates. Uh, And she has said, I think we ought to take that out of the USMCA before we approve it. Uh, um, We'll see whether that happens, but that's now a real possibility. And it's very hard to justify keeping it in. It's not a, a significant trade barrier. It is a domestic uh, policy that was necessary to get uh, uh, Silicon Valley to enthusiastically vote for uh, free trade agreements. Um, uh, So I would not be surprised if it comes out. All right. Face up. 
I, this this strikes me as the most overdetermined and underwhelming uh, story of the uh, uh, the week. Uh, somebody, uh, I think Charles Schumer asked uh, the FBI. So that face app thing where you uh, can figure out what you look like twenty years from now uh, uh, that the Russians have been selling is that safe? And the FBI said, "Well, in principle, no uh, a Russian uh, app is safe uh, from a counterintelligence point of view." Well, duh, right? Uh, uh, Paul, is is there anything more to it than the the FBI saying exactly what you'd expect them to say? Well, of course it's a, a, a duh. Though I, I would note that, you know, it's kind of a duh in the same way that you were talking about face facial uh, collection by US CBP. If you give the government your face, you give the government your face. Period. Full stop. End of story. And if it's the yeah. Russian government, you can expect them to be bad about it. If it's the US government, it depends whether you're a government skeptic or not, but they'll be better. No matter what you think, they'll be better than the Russians. End of story. Okay, so uh, <laughs> we're giving you all the, uh, the the stories that should never have appeared in the press. This one about the EU and the U.S., uh, the European Parliament asked the, the European Commission about uh, end-to-end encryption policy in the United States and the possibility the United States would say, we don't like it anymore, we're going to restrict it. Uh, uh, and they were asked, is, is Europe going to do that? Uh, and uh, uh, would that affect the EU-US uh, relationship? Uh, and I got to say, th- they got the most bureaucratic answer possible uh, and more or less meaningless. Is that right? Or I mean, there was a story, oh, no, another reason not to vote for uh, restrictions on end-to-end encry- encryption. But it was more or less uh, the European Commission saying, yeah, we're going to uh, keep our options open. Yeah, I mean, call, call me when the European Commission issues a notice to the soon-to-be-leaving UK post-Brexit that their anti, anti-end-to-end encryption legislation threatens uh, bilateral trade across the channel. When the EU actually does that, or to the Australians, or to anybody else, uh, I'll pay attention to them. Uh, but I, it's either a total nothing burger or perhaps another form for anti-Americanism out of the EU's uh, uh, commission. Like I said, overdetermined. Okay, last uh, thing. uh, There was a story that suggested that a fully patched uh, uh, Android phone up to date uh, is nonetheless vulnerable to uh, uh, bank account stealing uh, uh, attacks. Uh, um, Nick, how worried should we we be? Moderate but not huge. So what the attack actually is, is that a rogue app can ask for permission and make you think it is a different app that's asking. And so using this, apparently there's reports of bank account stealing rogue apps that basically make you think you're interacting with your normal bank account data, but extract the information. So the way to the, the way to, to deal with this is be very careful what you what you agree to when some when one of those uh, pop up boxes appears. And second, you can turn off the overwrite function, can't you? Uh, uh, so that they they can't actually borrow the space and and overwrite a a, 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 a separate app like your banking app. Well, it's taking advantage of the interprocess communication. So apps that are supposed to be able to talk to each other need to use these mechanisms. Um, I suspect that uh, Google is going to be busy scanning the Play Store for all the rogue apps and squishing them. 
And um, that combined with a inevitable update should resolve this problem. So uh, the other way to avoid this is don't, by God, bank from your phone. You know, I'm just not in favor of that. Okay, thanks to Paul Rosenzweig. Thanks to Matthew Hyman. Thanks to Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 292 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send comments and questions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter, and occasionally I will tell you what we're thinking about doing next week. Uh, uh, that's at Stuart Baker. Uh, and please, please get on uh, um, iTunes or Google Play if you like the show and leave us a review. We're getting a fair number of reviews and we deeply appreciate it. Nancy Pelosi, I'm talking to you. Uh, Please join us uh, next week uh, as we once again and for the last time before we go on uh, Christmas break provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.